Welcome to the Live Your Own Fit Podcast. I am your host, Pete Jacobs, and it is a pleasure to have Peter Defty on the show this week. He is a pioneer and innovator of burning fat for fuel. He's been a leader of the low-carb movement for decades, and his knowledge is immense. This is an awesome podcast with so much information for athletes, for people for general health, and how to optimize your fat metabolism, whether it be for health or performance. So enjoy this episode and please, as he says and reminds us at the end, send in questions so that we can do a follow-up and really get your answers to you. So please give us a comment below and like this and subscribe so we can give you another episode just like it. Here it is. Enjoy. Peter Defty, it's awesome to have you here on Live Your Own Fit Podcast. Um, as owner of Vespa, um, the amino acids that help you burn more fat for fuel and also just a longtime coach and mentor for many, many athletes in terms of getting them to use fat more efficiently through mm-hmm. your um, fat optimization no, sorry. <laughs> Optimized fat metabolism. OFM is yep. your is your catchphrase. Um, but I'm going to just start out with a good question, and it's basically not a question. It's just a quote that you always say, and that's it's not what's in your blood, it's what you're burning. And can you just elaborate on that and take us straight into your speciality? Okay. So, what, you know, when I say it's 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 what's in your blood, it's I think we'll change that. It's not just it's not just what's in your blood and what you're burning or what you're seeing. When we do blood test, when people do blood tests and, or they're monitoring their glucose and lactate, these are proxies. That's what's in your blood at the time. So you have to take it a step further. And people tend to, you know, use those numbers as sort of absolutes when they're really something to interpret with a lot of other variables, including other blood variables. I mean, it's just like, People have to always remember that when you're doing a blood test, whether it's a glucose and lactate test while you're on the bike testing yourself in training or you're doing a blood panel for the doctor for your physical, that is what is in your blood at that time. And then you have to sort of interpret and extrapolate from there based on a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. So basically, it's it's difficult to get solid answers. But in terms of when we're exercising, and eating more glucose, putting more glucose into your blood system, um, or eating more fat, for example, and putting more fat into your blood, um, doesn't necessarily change what's happening at the muscles, but it can. Um, or if there's high ketones, high ketones don't necessarily mean that you are burning heaps of ketones. That's exactly but right. A few of those things that, that, that don't equate to how the energy is being produced. Right. That's exactly it. Like, like I'll give you two really good ones. And, and the first one is, as you mentioned, ketones. What we've seen in, in really well fat adapted athletes is they tend to run lower ketones when they're fasted, not exercising. And they tend to run lower ketones when they're exercising compared to a sedentary person who's practicing strict nutritional ketosis. Um, they will turn up higher ketones in certain situations, but that's not always the case. They just tend to run trace ketones, like 
0.05 to one millimolar instead of the two to three millimolars or one, you know, one millimolar up that, that are tip, typically seen in a, a nutritional ketosis diet. And conversely, and this, is, this goes back to this whole concept of optimizing fat metabolism, is conversely, a lot of well fat adapted athletes, depending on their training load and the kind of training their le- level, kind of training they're doing at the time, will show really high glucose levels in their blood. And, and, and like particularly a well fat adapted athlete, if they hammer their workout at the end and track their blood sugar post-exercise, they'll see a marked glucose spike. Like I've some people doing fasted workouts, just Vespa and fasted. They'll hammer at the end and they'll see a spike of their glucose up to 200 millimole for 200 milligrams per deciliter, which is the American, I can't remember what the millimole equivalent is, but that's a pretty sharp spike. And it's very common to see a lot of athletes go 150 to 200 post-exercise, which that glucose gets shunted into muscle glycogen afterwards. But that's just, that's actually, you have to think it through. It's actually showing that your fat metabolism is working well because what that is, is hepatic production of glucose through glucagon signaling, and your liver's making glucose to ma- meet that, that metabolic demand of, of really high intensity pushing at that point. Yeah, and, and that's, I've, and I've that's experienced do it. that a lot. Yeah. Like, I've experienced yeah. the low ketones, and I've always had low ketone numbers, which years ago when I started testing was very frustrating because at that point, all the podcasts I listened to basically said, you're not in ketosis if you're not at 0.5. And I was like pulling my hair out and sculling MCT oil and trying to push my ketones high. And then um, you found me. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that it doesn't equate to that. And then I also have experienced going out and doing a threshold effort on the, on the bike and testing my yep. blood glucose afterwards. And it was... Um, let's say it was high five. So that's what you were talking about. The, yep, in, our, yep. in our numbers, I had about 5.7 or something from memory. Um, when really people would think, oh, hang on, if you've been burning your glucose, um, your glycogen in your muscles, and you're lowering your blood glucose through a hard effort, normally your blood sugar would then drop and that number would be below five. It could even be four. Um, but yeah, it, that's not what happens at all when you're doing that hard effort the hormones tell the liver to release more glucose to into the blood. And um, so it's amazing how well a fat adapted athlete can replenish their glycogen stores without actually eating any carbohydrates. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And, and if people don't understand that, um, that when you're doing, when you're making all that glucose from your liver um, stores, it's actually fat. And that's part of that whole model of fat optimization. It's not just about burning fat, especially like the MCT oil people. I don't want people using a lot of MCT oil because really about tapping into your own body fat, Mm. really. And it's, it's, it's to burn it through beta oxidation, which is the, what I call that base load fuel where you've got that steady thing and then then you have ketones and glucose um, from your liver and then you have glycogen and exogenous carbohydrates and maybe some ketone esters thrown in there um, you know that external there's, fuel there's to so really top it off sources, yeah. yeah I mean and yeah. Then you've got other recycling sources as well which I mean I don't even I'm not even aware of them all but the 
lactate and pyruvate and all these amino acids and other things that your body is producing in that cycle of energy production, it produces other things that can be recycled. That's exactly right. But the, but the point there is you want to minimize that recycling. And that's why having too much protein converting, that's a metabolic load converting too much protein into sugar. Right. You mean during, during training, during training and exercise, you want to, you want to have enough, but you don't want to have too much. Same thing with, um, lactate. Um, the reason lactate, lactate's a perfect example of what's in your blood and lactate's always been a, a marker for fatigue because as you see lactate goes, you get the muscle soreness and people correlated, you know, they talk about lactic acid and lactate, but lactate is, you know, the byproduct of burning glucose. So the pyruvate gets fed, converted into acetyl-CoA, gets fed into the Krebs cycle, make energy, but the lactate gets spun off. Now your heart, your liver, your kidneys, they know how to use lactate. And, but there's a certain rate, like there's a rate that the heart can use lactate efficiently, but then once it exceeds that rate and it has to start to recycle it, that puts an extra metabolic load on the body that, that you really don't want to need use for when you're training it, and racing. But could you also say that that extra load isn't necessarily the lactate, but the, the, um, it's the cycle, the energy production that caused the lactate, which is in a low oxygen state. So the fact that, you know, the lactate's produced in a more anaerobic state, which produces more free radicals and more oxidization. So it's yeah. the problem at the, at the mitochondria level, which also causes the lower efficiency of energy production. So, well, it's, it's manifold because you, you, you're, when you produce excess lactate past the, the rate of lactate absorption um, of the various systems, you know, you start to see the lactate levels rise, correct? Yeah. So, so then the body has to recycle and that creates a lot of extra metabolic monkey work. But as you say, uh, with that comes the oxidative stress. Uh, with, with that, you're, at, you're operating at a level at that time where your mitochondria are sort of maxed out and they're, they're in a hypoxic state and the, um, I can't remember, there's these super complexes within the mitochondria have folded into this hypoxic state to try to make do with what oxygen they have. So they're going to go more glycolytic than fat-based. And so it becomes a very nuanced and mixing. So I don't want to lose anybody, but yeah, we'll just say it's, it's basically there's less oxygen and you're using more sugars. Well, yes, but I'm going to take it a little further. Let's go into this. And this is another basic, (laughs) no, no, no. But there's, there's, there's some things people should be listening to here about this that have to do with optimizing your fat metabolism. You're, you're absolutely correct. And people should note that. But I've got a big but. When you optimize your fat metabolism, the other half of, of fat metabolism, we're always burning fat. It's just that if we have a bunch of carbohydrate, we burn a lot less fat. We burn a lot more carbohydrate. But the other end of it is not just a energy thing. It's a, it's a metabolic physiological machinery thing because fats, lipoproteins, cholesterol, those are the building blocks for all your cells, your mitochondria, your hormones, your enzymes, your cell walls, everything is based on a fat-based metabolism. Okay, glucose is just a quick energy source. It's your fight or flight energy source. 
Okay, so this other half is what builds mitochondria. And as you've seen in your journey, Pete, when you build that fat burning machinery, you're going to build more mitochondria. So when you go into that more hypoxic state, you got more mitochondria that can be a whole lot more efficient with that glucose because you haven't burned up your mitochondria by burning a lot of sugar. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big thing people don't understand that there's this indirect benefit that's huge when it comes to burning sugar. Okay. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, I, I know. I'm losing you too. <laughs> but, so, but, but that's the thing. It's like, like let, you know, there's a lot of talk about mitochondrial health. And, and this is the big one is, is you want to make big, healthy and numerous mitochondria within your cells. And, and hmm. it's, it's done on fat. It's not done on glucose, people. Glucose tends to put a lot of stress through yeah. oxidation. So if we, we put this in practical terms, the building the aerobic base in, let's say, that, that cycle of training phase, which is early on and, and long, and, and it's the low, long and slow, as people would say, I mean, talk us through some of the adaptations that need to be, that, are, that well, happen in that period. Well, well, yeah, it's, you know, and this, this is another thing. I just had a, a blog, a blog go out on this. It, it, you start with that, get fat adapted, right? Physiologically fat adapted by cutting out the carbs and changing. So your body wants to burn fuel. And we start with an aerobic base phase of two to three weeks, right? Where you're building, easily building that base up. But then two to three months for some. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you, there's a lot of things to figure out just as an aside, there's a lot of things to figure out with fat metabolism. It's not glucose metabolism works great because you shotgun a bunch of glucose. You're giving your body a lot of fight or flight fuel, which it has to burn. I mean, as Steve Finney and Jeff Bollock call it, it's the metabolic bully because it goes to the front of the energy line. Your body has to burn it or you die. This is why, why type one diabetics have to take insulin when they bolus with, in, with carbs, because if they don't get that insulin to drive it into the cells and burn it off, it's, it goes nuclear on them, literally. And one of the so factors is that a high blood sugar level will actually shut down the fat burning. And that's exactly right. And is that, that during exercise as well as at rest? Well, it, it, as you get more fat adapted, as you build more mitochondria, that impact becomes less and less. And then, then of course, the, the, the carbs become more like rocket fuel. When you're first starting out, if you start doing that, you still haven't got your insulin down, your body hasn't really reset, absolutely. So when we're going into this base building phase of you, you, you want to build up that thing because that creates a lot with that fat-based physiology it's fundamentally different. Cardio is fundamentally different because now you're feeding it with a sustainable one. You're taking away the oxidative stress and the inflammation that goes with burning a lot of glucose. And so cardiovascular training on a fat-based physiology is fundamentally different. And because, as I said, optimized fat metabolism has this back end in terms of generation, you start to generate a lot of capillary and microcapillaries. These are the last feeder lines to your muscle cells. And you want to build a lot of capillaries and microcapillaries to feed um, blood in and out of the, the muscle cells. And, and so once you get and the that oxygen as well, that, yeah. absolutely. The oxygen in, the CO2 out, um, the waste products, and also the heat. 
thermoregulation. And so when you take that inflammation away, you're not only getting more mitochondrial, not, not just mitochondrial biogenesis, but capillary and microcapillary biogenesis, but your veins, arteries, and capillaries, and microcapillaries, also their distensibility. And that's the ability for those vessels to grow and be flexible and pliable and actually move more blood much more comfortably. They, they actually... Um, work better because when you have a lot of glucose you get inflamed your blood mm. pressure goes up and that's why you know a high carb diet combined with salt makes your blood pressure go through the roof because those those arteries veins and capillaries are stiff mm. when you're on a fat-based one they become soft pliable and grow so you can deliver a lot more volume of blood to the cells in and out for oxygen and nutrition and then get that co2 waste and heat back out okay so that's and that's really key now to take it one step further once you have that base built then you got to bring in the high intensity interval training and tempo training in a periodized fashion in conjunction with the long stuff the lower intensity sort of like 80 20 20 percent should be in, in the upper zones including some really high super high intensity because you need that short, short, sharp stimulus to give your body that that yeah. adaptive Neur- stress. Neurally, for the nerves to fire and actually connect the entire muscle, yep. I kind of usually just use the example like, well, if you're only ever switching on 50% of your muscle, you're only ever training 50% of your muscle. That's exactly right. For the muscle twitch, the fast to get the speed up and also to signal to the body, it has to get better and more efficient at burning both sugar and fat mm. and so that that'll that at that point is when you start driving up your fat oxidation rate into this 75 85 80 percent of your vo2 max that sweet spot for for triathlon racing um and so then you know using glucose or you know whether it's glycogen or an exogenous source really makes it like rocket fuel because you you know once you can you can cruise on fat at 75 to 80% of your VO2 max. Then all of a sudden that last, you know, 20, 25% can be sustainably fueled by, by exogenous glucose and glycogen. Yeah. And so if we talked about the crossover point, which is people can in a lab test how much they're burning fat or glycogen as the effort gets harder and harder. Um, and the crossover point where you go from burning majority, more fat than you are glycogen and as the effort gets harder, that ends up being more glycogen, less fat, and you get this crossover point as the graph goes across horizontally. Mm-hmm. And the point with becoming better fat adapted is that that crossover point moves further along the graph. So the intensity is higher and you're still using a lot more fat. Is that right? Well, it's two things. It's actually a compounding thing because as the faster study showed, and I'll send you some graphs you can post if you want. Mm. Um, A, the the classic Brooks, George Brooks crossover was a well-trained endurance athlete would cross over around 65% of their VO2 max. You'd agree with that, right? Um, Yeah. You know, yeah. In the faster study, they showed that it moved up to that 75 to 80% of VO2 max. But here's the kicker combine the crossover shift with the huge increase in fat oxidation right because the 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 high carb diet cohort and faster they were burning about point 
six five, just over a half a gram of fat of fat a minute. Peak oxidation was the the high carb guys, the conventional guys. They were only burning like half, and they crossed over right about 67 percent of VO two max. I think it was sixty five percent. So right in line with the existing science. Okay, the low carb diet cohort they pushed their VO2, their crossover up to 75, 80% of VO2 max. But instead of burning like 0.65 or 0.67 grams a minute, they were burning one, averaging 1.54 grams a minute. And my question is for the listeners, tell us why that matters in terms of the stress that you're inducing for an endurance athlete. How does that benefit them towards the back end of a race? Well, it benefits them all through the race, right? The back and the back end is when people start to pick mm. people off because you're just not as depleted, right? And you Would can you say still depleted, go hard. Depleted, or there's just less stress accumulated as well. Both, <clears throat> both. You're less depleted. You haven't had that cumulative stress of all that oxygen, oxidative stress, the lactate load, um, all the things that go with burning a lot of sugar, and so you end up. I mean, it, it's just that combination of, of moving the crossover point into that sweet spot and being able to burn one and a half times more or two, 2.3 times more glue uh, fat over glucose. It just shifts that energy substrate load um, to where you're tapping into your own body fat. And that's, that's key to understand because a lot of the keto people, they tell you to do fat bombs and MCT oil and I say, no, 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 no. That's not even, not even people from who are like promoting this do that in races. Like, like, um, mm. you know, they're, they might, they might promote products that have it, but they don't use that on race day because it doesn't work for them. And like MCT oil, that, that literally will come out the, go right through yeah. you. <laughs> so I that's mean, a good, a good question that I've got for you is, there are products as well as just um, off the shelf products like MCT, but then there's also specific sports products that have fat in them. Mm -hmm. What is there any benefit in any research that you've seen on eating fat during an endurance effort when you are going relatively hard? So let's talking about Ironman where you are going at like 80% of your, of your VO2. Yeah, you're, you're racing. Is there, you know, your heart rate is above, math but you're up at your aerobic threshold for most of the day what's the benefit to having fat is there any here's the point that the listeners need to get you need to tap into burning your onboard fat that's mm. the whole point of of fat burning is evolution made us to where we feasted when we made a kill or or fruit was ripe it got converted to fat, and then we went out and hunted. Like I say, primitive man didn't get up in the morning, make himself a bowl of oatmeal, grab a couple of gels, and go hunting. No. Right? So there's no... Um, there's no, be there's no benefit. benefit for, for racing. Fat adapted, no. Right, right. If you're going out for a long, slow training day just to really put time on feet or time on the bike... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, because you're not pushing yourself to the point where the digestive load of trying to metabolize and draw, digest fat is that high. You really need to keep your, you know, when you're racing, especially if you're racing in the heat and humidity, your body is the blood, the, the resources are going to your muscles to perform. And then 
the blood's going from the muscles to the skin surface to thermoregulate, to cool those muscles, to keep the mitochondria from burning up. So there's a lot of hydration issues. Your, your digestive tract is basically put on sleep mode, right? So you can't digest. So I always suggest simple sugars and really focus on hydration, getting the right mix of salt and or sodium and electrolytes, other electrolytes, so that both the fluid from the mix of water and electrolytes plus the carb calories you're taking in will, will transit the stomach and gut osmotically just through the osmotic potential. So there's no digestive Mickey Mousing going around because a lot of products, because of this shutdown, a lot of stuff, if you take too much carbs in, it might start to, to ferment because it's not able to transit the gut. And then you got real problems. And you can't, the, the osmosis level, like if you've taken on a higher percentage of carbohydrates and let's say in the heat of an Ironman in Hawaii, your osmosis rate may have dropped to three to 4% of how dense a, for people to try and explain this, this is just how dense a liquid is with molecules. Yep. So you can, get, make, you can make it dense with electrolytes, carbohydrates um, that, are, uh, that are diluted in water. Um, but as you add more carbohydrates, that increases the percentage of yep. um, molecules in the water. So you can't absorb it across your intestinal barrier because A, it's hot and your body's under stress. And B, the current osmality of your blood where it's trying to get into has changed over the course of the race. And that's correct. It's can a you take us target. through your kind of, take us through a, a, an Ironman in Hawaii, what you would be drinking when and why um, as the race progresses? Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head there, Pete, because it is a moving target. And I've said this, it, it's just so dynamic that people have to be willing to experiment, make mistakes in training, and learn to do this intuitively because there's so many variables that we can, you know, you and I can, can armchair a simulated Ironman, but we don't know what will happen. Like, yeah. you, you, you can't you, practice an Ironman. You, you, can't pra you can't practice it. Yeah. And, and um, with several high level triathletes I've coached, literally I've had to have them go out and do training in the heat and make those big mistakes. So they know, they know what, they're up against. It's almost like you need to know what it's going to feel like before it gets worse. I guess. Right. And it's what I call, it's what I call a slow bonk. Um, Cause it'll start to come on like a bonk, like a slower bonk. But the problem is if you get behind on your hydration, it it can take hours to recuperate. It's not like uh, a blood sugar bonk where you, you hit a gel and you're, you're back to normal uh, hydration bonk. Because what happens is, Sodium controls extracellular fluid, potassium controls intracellular fluid. But when you start to get low on so sodium, you start to pull potassium out. Then you get all this, this, you know, mineral imbalances and the body's compensating. It becomes messy real fast. Um, and then the cells don't function. So it's really about staying on hydration and making sure that osmolarity is just right so that the fluid can transit the stomach and gut quickly and efficiently so that you can maintain a high rate of performance because as you're transiting that fluid in, it's going right out of sweat, right? Um, what I, in terms of a simulated Ironman, what I always recommend, because when you're a fat adapted athlete, um, 
to start with those swings. And you probably noticed that the swings in water weight, fluid weight, like if you weigh yourself before a workout, weigh the fluid you took in and weigh yourself after it, it I, it's very common for a male athlete to see anywhere from seven to 12 pounds of water, fluid weight shift in, in, in a, in a two to three hour workout in the heat, right? Cause you're just sweating gobs of fluid. Um, so that being said, your body knows how to keep on, keep reserved. So in an Ironman, what I suggest people do is unless it's like super hot and humid, don't hydrate until you get a good sweat going. I like to see a lot of athletes lose at least 1% of their body weight, which means you got a good sweat going before you start to rehydrate. Um, because we always carry a little extra. And I think the intuitive thing I want people to pay attention to is when you go out and run or bike, you just kind of feel sluggish for an hour or so. And then all of a sudden things kind of kick in because you're carrying that extra fluid. And once you get a good sweat going and all the hormonal and enzy enzymatic pathways are upregulated, then things go and then you just got to feed it with your hydration. And then depending on what you're doing and at what level, you know, add some carbohydrates. And that's why when you optimize your fat metabolism, it, it reduces the need for those external carbs. And as you so accurately said, the more carbs you have to put into that mix, the, the more it's going to impact that osmolarity and ability of that fluid to transit the stomach and gut, both for hydration and calories. Mm. And so, so, you know, like over the, over a Ironman, what I suggest people do is they, you know, like Kauai, you do the swim, um, you would get on the bike and get going, you know, just take a swig of something, nothing big and get settle in, settle in to the bike before you start any kind of feed, whether it's water or hydration. And, and Again, it's dependent on the day, mm. right? And I mean, as because you go if we start about what's happened in the swim, swimming is fairly low um, energy requirements because of you know you've got you're, you're supported by the water. There's no impact. The heart rate may have been high, but let's say that's only been for the arms a little bit. So plus the. Uh Plus the, the the thermal transfer of energy, the heat mm. regulation mm. from the water is so much higher than than yeah. in the air. So let's so say just, in the swim, you've used your arms. Maybe you've you've used a little bit of the glycogen that was stored in your arm muscles if you went hard enough. But really, you haven't used a lot of energy, or you haven't um, created a lot of stress. So there's no real need to suddenly have a heap of carbohydrates after the swim absolutely then, not but then yep. so that i'm just trying to paint the picture of why why you don't need it straight away um and then yeah take us through the bike then right right so you want to get settled in on the bike so you do the swim get settled in on the bike and, and look for what i call the switch and that's that's that point where you your your body's like oh okay i can go hard all day rather than struggle through because you know, you, you do the swim, like you say, it's glycolytic, you're, it's the start of the race, you come into the, the transition, you, you're scrambling, right? And I always have people pop a Vespa Junior as a little booster, so they get a little bit of orange juice hit of carbohydrate, and they get a little extra of the wasp extract. But then get out and get settled in on the bike in at least 20 minutes. I like to see people get anywhere from 45 minutes, half hour to 45 minutes before they start a feed, because you want that hormonal and enzymatic signaling to say, oh, we need a we have a high energy demand now, 
we got to ramp up because blood sugar and glycogen are, are that bridge fuel from going from a static state to an, to an active state, right? And so whether you're training or racing, you always want to look for that switch because that's when things are have ramped up to where your body's internally supplying the fuel. Then once you have that locked in, then you can start a feed, right? And that's when it's, it's, it's appropriate. And like, if you're doing a Kona, you know, you get out of the water, you're going, um, get settled in. I say, try to do your feeding somewhat early. Once the switch is well in like 10, 15, 20 minutes after you feel that switch go, then start a feed because it's, it's virtually impossible to get knocked out. Hmm. Right. And because I mean, um, as we mentioned earlier, one was when you go hard, you can actually increase your blood glucose in a, in a training session without eating. But the inverse can happen where when you are doing a long and slow or even at an Ironman pace heart rate, potentially, you can drop your blood sugar. So you That's kind right. of have the, the two ends of the spectrum. A, heart, a, a harder the effort, your blood sugar goes up. But the more moderate the effort over time, you can drop your blood sugar, which is one of the reasons why having a little bit of carbohydrates throughout an Ironman is good Absolutely. just to keep your keep your blood sugar at that kind of um, base level right right because the blood the glucose will get burned first and, and you're you're absolutely right because a well-adapted athlete they'll burn most of their energy will come from beta oxygenation and secondarily from ketones from ketosis because ketones burn cleaner than than glucose you know beta oxidation burns cleanest and most sustainable and then you'll be burnt you'll be making ketones and like you say you know you get into that submaximal effort you might be producing a fair amount of ketones, but you're simultaneously burning them, right? Mm. So you'll have low ketones, low blood glucose, and then just adding a little bit of easily transited simple sugars, you know, carbohydrates that pass well. And once again, athletes should experiment to find out what works for that well for them. Because do it. I guess you, there's so many areas where you are using the the blood sugar, like it's dropping because you're using your brain, you're using your diaphragm, you're using your muscles as well. So yep. there's so many areas of energy um, uptake during yes. a race. That's, that's exactly true. And the reason I'm saying to start a feed fairly early is the cooler it is, before it gets hot, you want to try to get a few calories in you because once it gets hot, then you want to tran tra change your nutrition strategy to focus on hydration and just get the calories down to a minimum. Like in the heat, if it's a hot, windy Kona, you're going to be doing all you can to get 100 calories an hour into you effectively and, and to, to be able to race at optimal ener energy, you know, power output levels in the... In the because of the stress heat. on the body. Yes. The, the, the stomach and intestines are going to not be able to um, yeah, they're they're on sleep transfer. mode. They're, they're yeah. yeah, yeah, they're in sleep mode because your body's trying to thermoregulate, and that thermoregulation is is at that critical phase if you're racing, right? So talking about that osmality and the difference in blood volume, um, is that a is that something that you consider? Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why uh, what I talked about earlier about a fat-based physiology this is another benefit of a fat-based physiology. When you have that distensibility of the arteries, veins, capillaries, and microcapillaries, they're soft, you can handle more blood volume, and it's going to allow you to thermoregulate. And I don't know if you've no noticed, but since you started to be fat-adapted, particularly when you're using the Vespa, 
you can sweat heaps, like, I mean, buckets. It's, it's, and so if you're putting out that much fluid in electrolytes, you need to be replacing them too. And so it's, it becomes critical and, and, and you can easily do it. It's just, but I think the, the, at that point, everybody knows to get enough water in them. They don't realize just how much sodium is required. They do require other trace electrolytes. I'm not saying you don't, but it's, but like 80 to 85% of somebody's sweat, the electrolyte profile is just sodium as salt. That's why sweat tastes salty. And again, it's a moving target. As you adapt, especially if you're in Kona shape and you've done heat training and all that, your, your body's going to adapt to be conserved electrolytes. So it's not going to put out as much. So like, you know, here in the States, when you do your spring training in March and April and you hit a hard day, all your kit is caked with white salt. But then by August, it's nothing because your body's adapted, right? So it's, it's really about maintaining that. And then that's where you kind of go to a trickle of, of sugar. And if you can, and one of the best things you can do is if you have your, you know, what your special needs table, if you can get it, get whatever your bottles are super cold, that's going to help because you're going to be internally cooling yourself. That's going to make a yeah. huge difference. Yeah. Um, and so another thing that can occur with getting better fat adapted and changing the way that you eat and train is what happens to sodium, both in how you can store it. Um, so you might actually have higher stored levels of sodium and then the way that you sweat it out. Is that right? Yeah. Here's the thing. And I'll give some people some tips. Okay. One of the main things that I see that's a problem is to do that is you store a lot of sodium in your liver and in your bones mm. along with other minerals. And this is one of the things I think why people feel, you know, your standard high carb athlete feels depleted at the end of a season, because we've been so scared of using salt that we're not using enough. And so the body compensates by pulling it out of the liver and bones. And by the end of the season, you just feel frail. And why, even though a lot of athletes are out in the sun all summer, they still have brittle bones because mm. they're just depleting those minerals. So that being said, um, you need to be replenishing it um, regularly, but, but with athletes not understanding just their, how much electrolytes they need, um, one of, two of the worst things they can do to, to impact their storage is prehydrating before an event you know, trying to drink a lot of water. You see people drinking water, drinking water. Mm. And all they're doing is going to the, going to the loo, right? Mm. You know, 20 minutes later, they got to go to the loo and pee. And, and what they're doing is they're, because you got excess fluid. You just drink to thirst because you don't want to create a situation where you're constantly having to excrete fluid, which means your body has to compensate by pulling uh, electrolytes out of the liver and bones to do that. And then, then all of a sudden, those easily accessible reserves that you need for racing, right? Mm. are gone and, and that's why a lot of people who who do this they find themselves kind of not being able to perform on race day because they're hydrating 48 hours before and right up to the start don't do anything your body has homeostasis it self-regulates your fluid balance and once you're adapted you have it down you're going to be fine and just like i said wait till you lose one to two percent of your fluid before you start a feed unless it's super hot and humid where mm. you just start you know, sweating heaps from the get-go, right? Mm. And one thing I've noticed, obviously, everybody says when you start first start going low carb, you really do need to up your electrolytes. 
sodium and magnesium particularly. But yes. over time, um, you know, I found that I was just going to the loo every night. And so I've actually reduced my sodium intake, particularly when I'm not doing, you know, I'm not currently doing five hours of training in the heat. Um, so I'm not sweating a hell of a lot, but I've reduced my sodium. So I'm no longer going to the loo every night. So it's funny how the right. body changes over time and, and what we, what we first do that makes us feel better isn't necessarily what we need to do several months later when things have changed in our body. Well, and that's because your body's changed. And once again, when you talk about that plasma volume, your body's adjusted to that hormonally and enzymatically to where it's, it's got the increased blood volume, but it's not shedding it. Like when you go low carb and you get that thing where you need the sodium, that goes back to that thing. All of a sudden, these stiff arteries have just gone from here, like here to there. So all of a sudden you don't feel it and you feel like a woozy and then you feel them and your body's trying, you know, it's still not adjusted hormonally. So all of a sudden you're going to the loo and then as time goes on, you, you adjust in like a, you know, you're still eating, but you're not scared of salt. You're just not eating heaps unless you're going out for a, a yeah. ride. And, 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 and that's, you make a good point when I'm talking about this, use a lot of salt when you're out there exercising and sweating a lot, just salt to taste and, and do the normal thing and drink to thirst in your, in your sedentary life. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much what you're saying you've adopted. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. Um, and it's, and to taste is an interesting thing as well, because there are times when salt won't taste as salty and it will taste more salty. Your, your receptors will actually tell you if you need something, if you just put salt in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Your receptors become sensitive to everything. It's like even your whole body is like, you know, you eat a big carb meal. It's like, like, you know, like I, like I'll have pizza right once in a while. And, and, and it's like an out of body experience. I'm watching myself just shoveling pizza in. Right. And it's good. It's good while it's going on. Then an hour later, it's like, Oh no, I shouldn't have done that. And you know, it's like for three days, you're feeling like, like terrible. Yeah. Um, that, that inflammation is a big part of it. Um, where basically a high carb diet, does increase inflammation in, in many different ways, um, whether it's the type of food that is carrying the carbohydrates or the carbohydrates themselves. Yep. Um, but then that inflammation can actually cause in, in, an inability for the body to get oxygen where it needs to go, which reduces the ability to burn fat, which means you go more glycolytic, you burn more sugars at a lower heart rate more quickly, and you're stuck in this cycle, which is sort of, um, you can relate that to sort of chronic fatigue people or, or people with those chronic inflammation issues. They will feel lactic at a very low heart rate. Um, and basically, because the oxygen's not getting where it needs to go, they can't burn the fat. They're using sugars all the time. Um, and so they're detraining themselves when they do exercise. Um, so give us a little bit more information about the the inflammation lack of oxygen and the detraining aspects that can occur well it's once again it's, it's kind of a complex mix but when you have these layers of inflammation you know you have the inflammation from too much glucose to begin with so that stiffens those arteries veins and capillaries right so your mm. blood pressure goes up your ability to deliver um goes down um 
And of course, then the muscles are re reliant on more sugar to burn than fat. You know, your hormonal enzymatic signaling gets pushed over towards more glucose burn. It's, it's sort of a cascading effect, right? But I want to add a big, big hope of promise here because what I've typically seen working with a lot of different athletes across age spectrums is when they get themselves physiologically fat adapted and start training, you know, like I said, they get their base training, like we talked about, base training, then starting to incorporate really high intensity interval training and tempo work like into the into the mix and get their aerobic fat metabolism up at that 75, 80% of VO2 max crossover and high oxidation rate, that window of carbohydrate tolerance goes way up. Mm. And, and I've got young male athletes that are just like smashing the carbs, just like old school carb loading technique. Mm. And all it does is make them go fast, doesn't impact their fat burning one, um, one bit, but that's, that's occasion. That's, you know, it's not, they don't do that all the time. And as soon as they're in recovery, they go super low carb, reset themselves and add in carbs very strategically, whether it's before or refeeding based on the training and the training load and the conditions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and, and the, that, that window, when you get fat adapted and aerobically fit, um, that's two things because a lot of the keto crowd, they like to do like CrossFit and strength and conditioning training and take pictures of their guns and their abs and all that. Um, they're not, they're getting some aerobic fitness, but they're not, uh, they're not um, optimizing it. Mm. And so they don't have that same window. Same thing with the body of research on keto. It's all based on, sed uh, on it's almost all based on sedentary people, mm. right? Right. So that's why it's, it's very strict that 50 grams and below or sometimes 20 grams and below. When you're looking at the more that aerobic fat based physiology opens up, the bigger that tolerance to carbohydrates. So it makes it makes the sustainability and the enjoyment of this kind of lifestyle so much better. You just have to try mm. to be willing to train. And, and as you know, once you get into a training mode, you kind of like look forward to it, right? It sucks for the first 20 minutes yeah. because, but you know, once you're in, you're in. And then, yeah, because I've seen in, in other elite athletes that still incorporate a fair few carbohydrates, but they're very aerobically fit. They're, they're elite athletes. Um, they'll still have ketones after having, you know, a beer and chips, which is not <laughs> obviously it's not good food. And they're probably getting a ton of inflammation and, response from um the type of food but let's say that they ate you know just rice and potatoes and yeah but they were still having good ketone numbers um because they'd put in you know five six hours of exercise for the day at dinner time they're still just shunting that glycogen very quickly into yeah. the muscles and ketones stay up yeah and they they, they do have some inflammation but it's and some oxidative stress, but it's not because of their insulin sensitivity is so mm. high. It's not nearly the level of somebody who's an athlete that would be on a chronic high carb athletic diet. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, you're seeing some pushback from the high carb camp now and they're showing exercise about how it doesn't work with keto. And, 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 and it's, it's not this, what gets me is, you know, and you know, this, 
you've got the keto camp here, you got the high carb camp here, and and they're not in the middle. And we're we're kind of, I'm kind of saying no. Look, there's all these different things, and and mm. also another thing that's really important for the audience to understand is fat adaptation for performance is not about just the diet. There's so many factors that mm. go into it. Magnesium, vitamin D, hydration. Those are the kind of training you do. Those are four things I can name right off the top of my head. And there's others mm. that are huge stress levels. There's five yeah. now. I mean, there's all these huge things that affect your ability to perform on fat. Whereas, mm. you know, stress, um, all these things that I just yeah. named off yeah. on, a, and I, on, a car, on a carbohydrate based thing, carbohydrates still work great because you know, your, 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 your body just has to burn them now. And that's what I mentioned earlier when I said the people with chronic illness don't burn fat well, but you don't even have to have chronic illness to not be able to get the oxygen in to burn the fat. Well, it may just be, Oh, you had, a, if you had a hard session the day before, which was a glycolytic session, burning sugars, and you've, produced a lot of oxidative stress in the muscles and their cells that is going to reduce your ability to burn fat the next day as well, just because of the stress load. And if you add in a late night sleep, um, you know, some bunch of alcohol, Absolutely. As emotional stress, work stress, you know, the hormonal response, the oxidative stress, the next day you aren't going to burn fat as well as you would have when you're really good. And that brings me to something I wanted to, um, mention a given example of and get your opinion of so mark allen famously trained at math for a long time and but then when he he obviously got very fit and fast at an aerobic level but obviously in race day he didn't stick to you know his math heart rate 180 minus his age but he didn't need to and um, something i've said for a long time is you're always better on race day don't go by the numbers and things on race day because you're, no, you're, you're in peak you know, shape of your life, like the best shape of your life, which also means there's less, the least amount of stress in your body on race day, which means you can perform at a higher level and still be aerobic. That's right. That's right. And, and that's one of the things in the OFM program, you know, when we talk about stress, I think that we, we humans have gotten too, ensconced in our human man-made environment we're too proud to you know and, and i'm not saying it's miraculous i love data i love to look at but we've gotten so focused on data that people are looking at their power meters and their garments and and seeing if they're where they is it's like i said i i try to tell people no take the data let's look at it afterwards and see what the trends are and i want you to become intuitive because on race day i want you to just go out and fucking kill it there's no other way to just go out there with the attitude. I'm going to go out and fucking kill it. You know, just, you know, cause that's what evolution did for us. We, we were meant yeah. to go out and hunt game mm. and, and, you know, you have to have that sort of like intuit develop that intuitive sense as part of the whole fat metabolism. So you're not stressing, you have that quiet confidence, not the cocky confidence, but the quiet confidence to just know that you can go out and execute. I love that. You know, <laughs> And on any given day, you just go out and execute. So I always tell us, I just go out and effing kill it. Yeah. And, and not, and yeah, let's take data. Let's look at it. Mm. But you should, by that time, by the time you get to that, exactly what you said, you should know in your heart of hearts mm. where you are 
and what's going on and be able to make those adjustments, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing about that adaptation that's really good for racing is when you become that adaptive, you become what I call blood sugar stable. And this has profound impacts. It's much more subtle. It's not something you can measure with quote unquote science, but people know it. They're more focused. They're mo more emotionally stable. So you're not having all these pre-race jitters. Yeah, you're excited, but you don't like overthink things, right? You just kind of have that intuitive thing going into a race. Okay, I'm going to do it. So you can get a decent night's sleep for the, in the week leading up to your race. Um, you can have that, that, that emotional stability that's going to put you in that peak physiological shape of your life. So you're peaking on race day. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing, and, and, I, and you might want to incorporate this into your coaching. With fat adaptation, everything changes in terms of the training. And that's why the training is a big part of adaptation is I don't do, especially for like Ironman and ultra ultras, like the hundred mile ultras and more. I don't do a taper per se. I do, I do, a, you know, what I call disruptive periodization. But then after that peak build period, we go into a big recovery period. And then, then I do what's called a modified build instead of tapering because you build back up to the, to where you're peaking on race day because i find that athletes get stale if they're in a big taper mm. for ultra endurance because because the, the 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 shift in fat you know if you're doing high carb you do have to do a taper because it when you go through your peak build phase you know there's so much cumulative oxidative stress you need that two weeks just to recover mm. right whereas you don't you don't need that i mean um I had a guy I was coaching three years ago and he was doing the triple crown of hundreds and then another 250 mile race after that. So he did four over 200 mile races in less than four months. And because he was active military and his doctor found out about it, she was like, no, you're not supposed to be doing this. So she was taking his blood work before and after every race, because if there was any changes, she was going to tell him he couldn't do it because technically you're damaging government property. Anyway, that never happened because his blood work never changed, right? And he was doing two over 200 miles. The last two were 250 mile races. He got stronger as he went. So two weeks after the first one, he said a PR, a PB, and the 5K, 10K a mile. And then after the third one, he did 250 miles in the mountains of Moab, Utah. Um, Five days later, he ran a 23-minute PB at, at the marathon, the Marine Corps Marathon. Just five days later, ran a 321 marathon. The guy's not even built like a runner. He's built like a Marine. Stocky, doesn't look like an endurance athlete. And then he did the Okinawa survival run. He was the first foreigner to ever finish this 250-mile run around Okinawa in heat humidity. One sleep cycle, less than 40 hours after doing that, he did the Marine Corps PT, scored a perfect 300. So I'm just illustrating that the recovery is a whole, because when you reduce that oxidative stress down to nothing, which of course you're experiencing, the recovery is so much better. And, the, and, and instead, instead of trying to recover back to baseline, right? And have a little bit of an improvement, the body doesn't have the exit. So it's, it's using more of that impact of the stress to get stronger. So that 
the hormesis, the adaptive stress, the, 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 the body gets stronger, fitter. And I think a lot of it is what goes back to that mitochondrial biogenesis. Mm. And so that leads into like um, why he was able to perform. His, his energy production was not inhibited by accumulative stress. So can I just get your definition, I guess, of energy? Like, because everybody says energy and some people totally misuse it and say, you know, basically, oh, I, I needed energy, so I ate some more um, glucose. And, you know, that they're two totally different things because energy is demand-driven and it's also based on the ability to produce energy from, you know, such as from accumulative stress reducing the ability to produce energy so yeah tell what is energy in your mind well you you make a very good point in terms of training and racing right there i i you really have me thinking there as you go along in a big race that oxidative stress is impacting that ability to produce energy because of its Mm. impact on on your mitochondria and your krebs cycle and so like if you can reduce that down to a fraction it's like we were talking about in the back end of your race, you got something in the tank and can keep, keep going. And then, you know, yeah, you can throw a little, you know, gasoline of glucose onto the fire to, to stoke it. I mean, yes, you have some fatigue. I'm not, you know, nobody's mm-hmm. saying it doesn't happen, but compared to somebody who's been burning three, 400 calories an hour or trying to right in an Ironman race, it's a whole different thing and and people need to make that paradigm shift because we've been we've been sold and told this idea we need external calories and people mm. have totally forgotten the fact that we've got thousands of calories on us not just the fat but the glycogen and and glycogen is our fight or flight fuel and we have this robust supply problem is is the modern science has, has focused on that as as our main supply and it's not it never was meant to be that it's that it's that little reserve we need to give us that extra push when we're surging to pass somebody, you know, we're hunting people mm. down in, in Ironman and, and that along with some external calories will give us that extra performance, but that base fuel load should come from our fat stores. Yeah. And what you mentioned earlier, the bit I loved about you've got to go into the race with that quiet confidence of, you know, I can kill this. And that also helps the ability at the back end of the race because confidence is going to keep your nervous system lower. You're not going to use up those hormones like adrenaline and the things that help you with pain tolerance and motivation is also going to be able to kick in. Absolutely. And that's, that's where, again, when you look at the sympathetic parasympathetic nerve system, uh, the adrenal response, the cortisol, those are meant to be used occasionally, right? Mm. They're not meant to be used all the time. In our modern world, the way we're being pinged, as I say it, the way we're being pinged by, you know, pinging on our phone of a text coming in or a notification, and we're supposed to keep track of our power, our output, our glucose, and trying to consciously keep track of all this stuff that we're never meant to keep up. Like, we're supposed to get into that, that you know, as Mark Allen and Phil Maffetone have talked about, that zone, the zone. And get into that zone and go. And, and it's, it's a compilation of taking these tools, these conscious human tools, and leveraging them into that intuitive athlete, right? And, and, then, and that's based on that that fat burning physiology. I mean, that's, that's like I say, you know, 
several million years of evolution wasn't wrong. I mean, the reason we carry the extra fat is that's what our aerobic energy is supposed to be predicated on using and glycogen is our fight or flight and we're made robust. So we have plenty on board, but when you have this situation where we're trying to overthink things, we've taken ourselves out of that natural environment and, you know, we want to use the adrenal stuff, the cortisol for when we need it. Right. Mm. And we, and then that'll tap into the, the, the glycogen stores and give us that adrenaline from when we need it to push. But we've just, you know, burned ourselves out by using the energy supplies that we're not meant to use chronically. Mm. Um, just a couple more questions. It won't keep you much longer. It's been unreal. Oh, oh It's been so good. Um, aerobic deficiency syndrome, the phrase that, Phil Maffetone coined decades and decades ago. Have you, can you explain what you see in your athletes, um, how you've kind of gotten them through it and some of the progression of what you've seen from changing diet and training approaches? Well, it, it goes back, like if people, you know, look at, listen to this thing, we've talked about a lot of them. It goes to your mitochondria. It goes to that cardiovascular system, you know, getting those, the lungs, the, veins, arteries, capillaries, microcapillaries in the kind of shape where they can deliver maximum oxygen. It's like, like, why wouldn't you want to optimize the, the system that feeds your muscles mm-hmm. right first so that you can deliver the energy oxygen in, get the CO2 and waste products and heat out before you start working on, on getting the muscles, because by doing that, you're going to, build, then you're going to generate more mitochondria. And by, by using, a, you know, whole foods, fat adapted strategy, you're going to give your body all those building blocks, right? To build more healthier cells, more robust mitochondria. So you can have more bigger, larger, so that you can, you know, handle more oxygen. So you're not in that deficit. You're not burning the mitochondria. You're not creating the oxidative stress that's literally burning up the mitochondria and creating that, that hypoxic unit. I, I read a mm. wonderful paper on, on what they call these super complexes in mitochondria and how they, there's a, these five different super complexes within the mitochondria. And then what happens is they start to fold when, when they sense a hypoxic, there's these enzymes that sense a hypoxic mm. load and then they change in order to adapt. And it's the same thing as, um, you you see with um, how the 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 same proteins also fold in that, in heat adaptation. You know, the, the, there's two or three weeks of heat adaptation where your 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 cell proteins start to fold in different ways to adapt to the stress of extra heat, right? Mm. And so the body is pretty remarkable in doing that. You just have to allow it to do that. And and, and like I said. When you're burning glucose, you know, it's a fight or flight fuel. So all of a sudden it's like, it's like the the lion has jumped out of the bush or Mm. you've got the other tribe chasing you to come kill you and rape your women, you know, take your women and children as slaves. And so when that happens, you drop everything else to deal with the immediate thing. And that's what glucose sort of does. And it's great for that top end racing fuel. But Mm. if you do this kind of crisis management, you stop, you, you impede all those other processes. You don't stop them because like I said, we're always burning fat. It's just, are we doing it optimally or not? 
Yeah, and we're 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 um always using glucose and fat at the same time. Always. Right. Um, so have you seen that that classic high heart rate, but you know the heart rate basically has no no aerobic ability. It, it as soon as someone starts to walk almost or jog, it shoots straight up to well above math um, heart rate. Um, have you seen some of your people have come to you and, and seen huge improvements? Well, yes, in general, but it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, like you notice it, like, say you didn't sleep or you're stressed about something mm. and you've, you've been having caffeine, you go out and try and do a workout. And it's like, even somebody like you, if you didn't get sleep and you're on caffeine mm. and something happened, you go out and try to do a workout and then boom, your heart rate goes up. Right. Um, at the same time, when you, what we've also seen, once you're fatted, physiologically fat adapted, because remember, um, when Phil was working with people like uh, Mark Allen, Stu Middleman, Mike Pig, back in the 80s and 90s, his, his approach, he was working with high caliber athletes who were already, just by training, had a pretty good level of fat adaptation. Mm. And his, he didn't make this, the same dietary shifts or anything like that because it was a different time. There wasn't a need to. So, so his idea of low carb back then was going from uh, processed grains to whole grains. I have his, his first mm. edition books. And, and so the Maffetone training worked really well. But what we found is when you get really seriously physiologically fat adapted, when you do like tempo work, like at that, that math maximum, we actually see the heart rate go up the math has to be adjusted um, 10 or 15, 10 to 20 beats more. Um, so the maximum heart rate increases. Yeah. The yeah. maximum heart rate increases. And I think that's a function of what we would call physiological age. Mm. So what I've seen, the tendency is, is that like younger guys in their twenties and earlier thirties, that adjustment is much smaller. If at all, they're still they're They're more on that. Um, that 180 minus your age for like math work works well for them. But as you get into the thirties, forties and fifties, all of a sudden you need to add 10 or 15 beats because I, I've seen, I did, I did this, Oh gosh, way back in the early two thousands with some athletes and I'd find they just plateau. And, I, and even now I still see this, they'll go hard keto, start doing math training and, and, the, after two or three weeks, they, they can't, they, they're just walking any slight hill on a run, they're, they're walking it. Or just because they, they can't, their heart rate, their, their standard 180 minus their age with adjustments mm. just doesn't work. And as soon as we move it up 10 to 20 beats a minute, depending on the factors, boom, they start to be able to train well, they keep seeing those increases in pace, mm. pace or power at the same heart rate. So I and I think that's, that's due to um, the increase in that arterial distensibility, that flexibility in the thing, because you don't have that, the, 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 the cardiovascular system is a closed loop system, hydraulic system. Okay. So the heart is a pump, right? Mm. And you have a, you have, if you have a lot of, if you have that tense things like on heart carb, the, the heart rate's kind of limited, but once you relax it, it picks up a different cadence, you know, like, you know, how cadence is important in running and on the bike it's picking up a higher cadence because it can, because there's less back pressure to slow the heart down. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. And, and I've also heard a few, a few theories that the heart nece isn't necessarily the pump. 
there's also other factors of energy, um, you know, this, this unseen, untestable energy, which can actually be helping the blood circulate the way that it circulates and the, the heart itself is not doing 100% of the work. So that leads, that connects with what you're saying is as the veins change, as the, as the mitochondria get healthier, their information of what they're meant to be doing and how they work to move blood also improves. So it's not just the heart. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's, that's the problem is when we're talking about conscious thought and science, (laughs) you know, we're trying to keep track of too many things and we can't. So everybody focuses on one thing. So they, they focus on the heart or they focus on the diet or they Mm. focus on a certain modality of training and they don't look at this, big moving dynamic matrix as i call it yeah which is what the human body is i mean biological systems work this way and i as a biologist you know i look at the the human i look at the human in terms of how it exists in the food chain or in the environment or look at like i don't know the other day i was looking at you know things in the central valley and the cropping systems and how it used to be and Mm you know this and the sun and you mentioned the sun at the very start i mean how we exist on earth and how we relate to everything absolutely it all comes from that energy of the sun and how it cycles from the plants and the bacteria and the algae into the food chain and creates this cycle of energy and how we even though we depend on the that for food for most of our energy we actually also take in energy from the sun and convert it to vitamin d and other compounds yeah i mean um you know when you look at vitamin d which is important you know you read the things like michael hollick who's the foremost expert researcher on vitamin d he says there's at least 10 other compounds we don't know about that are produced by sunlight from the vi- sunlight yeah. vitamin d and and it's it's just an amazing journey and that's another thing when you get that sweat rate and your pores open the fat and and also the fat adaptation what i've noticed is my skin i don't wear sunscreen Mm. and i don't wear a shirt unless i'm at altitude and i don't burn i my skin i'm the same too you know it's just amazing um and and this is consistent from from the athletes I work with, just just how much better their skin tone is and how mm. how well it's preserved. And then you are going to absorb vitamin D and convert it into all these elements that we need much better because your skin yeah. and cells are working better to do that conversion. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And those you know, for years, I mean, they're talking about it now in relation to this COVID nineteen thing because low vitamin D is is synonymous with really bad outcomes of COVID. But I've been talking about vitamin D for years because that was one of the first things I identified was vitamin D and magnesium are two things that unless somebody's actively pursuing maintaining their vitamin D and magnesium, they're going to be deficient in that. And for an athlete, the standard medical reference range, which is 30 to 100, I don't, I don't remember what it is in millimolars, but, but that standard reference range is not good. Anything below 50 for an athlete. Um, is deficient. You, mm. we, uh, you know, I've just always seen that in terms of performance, it's a big one. Yeah. It's just, Nit- nitric oxide's really related. Absolutely. Isn't it, to, yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, and that and helps I've got, to carry the oxygen and do all sorts of things. So, And that's a very, that, that's a multifactorial thing. I mean, you, you see a lot of focus on the, the beat elite and the uh, alt red products, which, which do have an effect, you know, um, the little blue pill, uh, for men is, oh, yep, is, yep. A, and is another beetroot juice and right right 
Um, I also use a product called Mother Dirt. They don't pay me anything, but it's called motherdirt.com. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bacteria that's endemic in, in the environment. I mean, it's, it's in our environment. We've literally cleansed our bodies off of it. Because Mother Dirt is a soap, isn't it? Well, no, no, well, no. It's, it's, it's actually it's, it's a, a bacteria. It's a bacteria. It's literally but, I mean, a bacteria. You use it. You use it to yeah. wipe on your body as as. Well, well, you 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 no. You actually inoculate your body with it. Okay, and then that bacteria exists on your skin just like it does on other animal skin, and it actually takes the ammonia that's coming off your sweat and converts it into nitric oxide. So when I I'll do an inoculation that once every couple of weeks. So you know, I'll put it on me yeah. and uh, I'll also inhale it through my nostrils to inoculate my nasal cavity with it. And that, that ammonia gets converted to nitric oxide and it makes your skin breathe even better. And mm. it's, it's just amazing. But again, it takes, it's just like going from high carb to high fat in terms of hygiene, going from this idea of using all these shampoos and cleansers to mm. inoculating yourself with a bacteria, right? Yeah. And than just rinsing off or using their soap, which won't affect the bacteria because, you know, this, like I say, this, this bacteria is endemic in this, in the environment, mm. but it's easily washed off and it doesn't compete as well as other bacteria and, and fungi growing on your skin. Mm, particularly with the way that we use this type yeah. of soaps that we use. And exactly, yeah. exactly. It's a, just, a, it's just our modern uh, man-made environment has kind of got us off track. And, and all I'm trying to do is yeah. just kind of get us back on track with a little help from some man-made things. Yeah. Now. So talking about that, that's, that's what Vespa is trying to do. Um, yep. Just give us a, give us a bit of a, how to use it. Okay. So Vespa, Vespa has been around for 20 years and I've been doing fat adaptation for about 20 years, kind of pioneered it in the um, new millennia. I mean, actually Phil Maffetone was off pursuing a, a music career. And, and when people started performing on fat, that's when he got sucked back into the vortex. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if you knew that, but Phil was Phil's a, a huge oh, musician. Yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. Guy, the, the guy, the guy's literally a renaissance man. Yeah. I mean, he um, lived with Johnny Cash. Yeah, and, and recorded with a lot of other mm. real famous uh, musicians. And he and, lived and, with Rick Rubin as well. Like, he's helped yep. some amazing Yeah, people. yeah, yeah. So he was, he was like totally, I'm, a, I'm friends with him, and, and, and he was totally immersed in this music career. And then, you know, when I started to, when people started to see these athletes, doing on this crazy fat based thing, they people started remembering Phil and started to pull yeah. him back into the, the thing. But um, Vespa has also been around for 20 years and, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's literally a natural, an accidental discovery of nature. So back in the, I can't remember if it was the late eighties or early nineties, some Japanese entomologists were studying this, this giant wasp, which has made the news recently They're called the murder hornet. So, um, with all the things going on, the murder hornet still made the news. So it's this hornet they were studying, and it's, it's, it's literally the apex predator of the insect world. Okay? And they're like, they started studying it, and they're like, this thing can fly 50, 70, 100 kilometers a day. It goes and attacks prey, sometimes many times its size, and then masticates it into a food ball, that weighs about 30% of its body weight, then flies back to the colony, feeds it to the larva. It's like, holy crap, what is it? What makes it be able to do this? I mean, it's like in terms of performance, strength, all it's, I mean, it, it, it's like, it's like a, you know, it's like these elite 
um, special forces guys on steroids. Mm. Okay. And so it, they, um, bees, wasps, ants, and termites have this symbiotic relationship called trophlaxis, which is between two life stages. So this adult wasp, which is the largest insect that does this, it feeds the food to the larva, which can eat a solid food. And in exchange for that food ball, the larva give it this peptide that they secrete that activates it to be able to access all the fat stored as thorax for high level performance, right? Because flying, fighting and killing prey and, and, and then taking it back, is, it, it combines endurance with strength, right? Mm. Um, and so they're like, oh, and, and then what they deduced in thinking about this is saying, well, you know, animal cells are remarkably similar across species. And if you're a bio biologist, you know this, you know, cell, cell biology across animal species, the cell, the cells mm. are like 90 some odd percent the mm. same. We're even, we're even about 60% the same as bananas. So yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, this is the cycle of life, right? Mm. And evolution. And so so they, they theorized that this could work in other animal cells. So they started playing with rats and mice and, and doing swimming test exhaustion. Sure enough, it works. So then they incorporated it with um, humans and, and, and showed it works. So there's a couple of papers. There's some, there's some, eh, the papers aren't very good. That's why I don't really post them because mm. I understand what good science is and it's, it's, yeah. I don't want to post schlocky science. So, um, but anyway, that's that's what Vespa does. It's a catalyst. People have to think of it as a catalyst, not calories. Because mm. people will pick up a thing of Vespa and look at it and says 18 calories. This is a gimmick. Mm. You know, because they, they just don't understand because we've been, once again, we've been sold and told this idea you need these external calories rather than mm. use this as a catalyst to tap into the thousands of calories you have on board. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that, that comes to what we were saying before about there's so many pathways for fuel for energy there's so many different types of fuel for energy that if this can fill in those gaps a little bit like um like it's needed to warm up as you're saying you need to warm up right. before the fat becomes optimal fat burning you don't just yep. flick a switch and things happen the same way the entire time even if you keep the same heart rate at an aerobic level over time yep things will accumulate like nothing stays the same so it's it's dynamic is, yeah so this is just an extra little fill in the gap that helps that process work a little bit better or yeah yeah and we're we we're we're i have a researcher who's conducting a a double blind placebo crossover study um but it got interrupted by COVID, right? So we're going to pick it up again this this summer when school starts for him. But unpublished data so far um, that it's unpublished, but anywhere from a half a gram to a full gram a minute increase in fat oxidation with Vespa. Uh, some people even see a VO2 max increase, mm. right? Um, well, you're still you're still aerobic at VO2 max. I mean. Yeah, you're, you're still, still burning using oxygen to create yeah, energy. Right, yeah. right. It's it's never one or the other until you get to VO2 max, and then you, VO2 max, and even at VO2 max, there's been some papers suggesting the pathways that the sugar burning covers up of the little bit of fat burning that's still going on. But um, one athlete I've worked with, Jeff Browning, he's 48 and he's one of the top uh, 100 mile trail ultra specialists. Uh, in the sport, 
he's tested out um, at 2.22 grams a minute of peak fat oxidation, which is just unheard of. Mm. Like, like before the faster study, the science suggested that the peak fat oxidation an athletic human could do was up to a gram a minute. And most people would burn between half and three quarters of a gram a minute if they were a well, well conditioned athlete, right? Faster changed all that with 1.54 grams a minute average. And, and John Rutherford was one of the athletes who I work closely with. He, he recorded 1.79, no VESPA, just straight keto. So 1.79 grams a minute. Jeff Browning, he went from 1.23 grams a minute fasted to 2.22 grams a minute fasted with Vespa. Which is a great point to hit home to people that aerobic capacity is not a heart rate. It, it's not attached to the heart rate. Heart rate is a guide, but aerobic capacity is something that is totally different um and it goes yeah. by as you said earlier you can feel it you need to get in touch with how it feels your breathing yep. your your mindset um you you can feel what's going on but to get right. up to 2.2 he's he's able to demand a huge amount of energy through his muscles and still be burning mostly fat right and that, so that his kind heart of... rate will be his heart rate will be much higher but what's going on at the muscle level will be that aerobic maximum aerobic function. That's, that's exactly right. And, and that sets the stage for like, like he's like last year at Western States, he ran the fastest split in the last 38 miles of the race. And, and, and mm. you had a guy, a guy who 29 years old, Jim Walmsley, who ran, who won the race and, and has set records. The guy's a phenomenon. He was racing another guy. They weren't, he wasn't just coasting in in the lead. He had a guy chasing him. So he was racing too. And this is a guy, these are a couple of 29, 20, you know, late 20 guys, top of the sport. And then and Jeff, is. Jeff, Jeff is 47 years old and he was, he was ninth or 10th. You know, he was in that top 10 and there were three guys racing, three or four guys racing in that back chasing each other. Mm -hmm. But, but his last 38 miles were the fastest of all those top 10 mm. people by, by a long shot. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of telling about like what we were talking about early of like, how are you going to be able to perform in the back half of your race? How do you produce the most amount of energy or have the demand for the energy able to ask for it to be produced without that fatigue? It's. Yep. And that's, that's where, you know, as you know, that's where Ironmans are won or lost, right? Oh, yeah. you know, it's the last person to slow down wins most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Most yeah. of the time, I mean, you look at Hawaii and I mean, really, the winner has a great day and pretty much everyone else has like a, a just slightly off their best. You know, right. you, you rarely see a race in Hawaii where there's, where there's, you know, five guys that have all come, they, they would all cross the finish line and say, wow, I, I, I had a perfect race. I was able to push to the end. Like, yeah. yeah yeah you know like that crazy. dude like 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 the mark allen uh what was it the mark mark allen and what, what's dave the guy scott. dave scott duel in the sun yeah. thing yeah, yeah. it's it kind of funny because i actually was going to school university at davis when dave scott was living there yeah. and, a friend, and a friend of mine used to be his next door neighbor and they used to go out for runs together it's kind uh, of, i love that dave scott is now so 
behind the benefits of low carb um, that, you know, he's really, you know, on the, on, the, on the end of the scale well, that he's promoting how good it is now. It's great. Yeah. 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 It's good. Good. Great to hear this. And it's like, like in these times, I really admire people like Dave Scott and Tim Noakes because, yeah, you know, they're not, they're, they're sort of like the political leaders of this movement because they're late, they're late comers, but, but to have the balls to say, yeah. Hey, I was wrong about this. We need to make a change. We need more leaders who have that kind of skill set to say, hey, wait a second, maybe I overshot this. Yeah. You know, and understand that they are going to polarize people. And I know things that I say yeah. polarize people, but I mean, okay. Dave You're Scott, in Dave Scott's position, to be polarizing people who, you know, the majority of the triathlon community still believe that carbs, especially the higher profile people, most of the elites will still say, no, I need carbohydrates to perform well, like, and I need to eat a lot of them. Um, so he's going against the grain of his entire community yep. uh, or the majority of the community um, and well, polarizing people. So it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. And, 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 and it's kind of sad because what you just said, it's like, it's frustrating because, you know, you talk about polarizing. I've polarized a lot of people because I started talking about this in, from 2000. And, yeah. And, you know, and I've been blasted by Jason Coop, who works for Carmichael Training Systems and, you know, Louise Burke and yeah. Chris. I mean, it's just like when I was really getting my starting to really get this going, because I didn't know better. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do this. And, you know, in 2006, Louise Burke was saying, we got to put the nail on the coffin about this fat stuff. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And Chris Carmichael was saying it's about the carbs and they still do. Right. Um, and you have to give, you have to, I don't know, it's, it's one of these things where you got to push and, you know, I've been polarizing people for a long time and people thought I was kooky because I'm not, I'm not Dave Scott. I'm not Mark mm. Allen or Phil Mapitone. I'm just this guy who figured it out and, and got started to get a lot of uh, really high caliber athletes in a niche sport to perform well. And then, mm. We've had, you know, we've had people like um, I've worked with uh, Olympic gold medalists in in the swim, um, which is which is that's interesting because you know swimming is a is a glycolytic sport, mm. right? The, the competitions the competitions are glycolytic, but yet the the training is highly aerobic because there's no way you're going to spend three, four, or five hours in a pool at, at glycolytic levels, right? But I love that 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 you can still in a hundred meter event, which is the second shortest event in in swimming, you can still go out too hard and blow up too early. In a that, in a in a, I can't remember how quick the females swim, but I mean, we're talking like less than a minute, far less yep. than a minute. You can still go out too hard. It's yep, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I was able to successfully help a, a, an athlete. With that, and then the other thing that's interesting is is Vespa has been used by some some men's figure skaters, and a men's figure skating is four minutes long, and this is goes back to that mental focus and motor retention of motor skills because your blood sugar is stable, because that's all you know. It's less than four minutes, but but again, like swimming, the ice skating they they train for hours, right? Mm. But in figure skating, it's it's not like swimming where you can train for three or four hours. When 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 somebody's trained for figure skating, the coach is watching them closely, 
because as soon as they get sloppy, they got to pull them off the ice because they'll either do the move wrong or they'll hurt themselves. And so these athletes who've, who've won Olympic gold medals, I've worked with them, they are able to stay on that ice practicing longer. So they use the Vespa for their performance, but it's really in the training because you can just work on your moves to where you just got them down. And, and once again, it goes back to that quiet confidence that you just know you can go out on the ice and just execute. And that lack of oxidative, that lower oxidative stress buildup. Right. Absolutely. So recovery is quicker. Um, yep. They just inform can information they transfers better. Adaptations better in so many aspects. Yeah. The, and you can handle a higher training load. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's just, a, it's just fat adaptation. It doesn't, I think what people miss is, is like I say, people are looking, most people want to look at what's right in front of them, right? The shotgun approach. Yeah. And, and the, the thing about fat adaptation is, is the, the, the real benefits are sort of behind the scenes going on. Mm. They give you, put you in a place where you can sustainably perform at a, at a, at a high level for a long time. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what it is. And, you know, we, we've seen, uh, but as you said, of, it's, it's a holistic approach. You can't be totally stressed at work and have high yep. cortisol all day and then think, Oh, if I just train at low heart rate for two months, I'm going to therefore be really fat adapted at the end of it. I mean, you're not going to, you will get better, but your progress is going to be much slower if you chuck in poor sleep stress and these other factors. Right. And it may never be as good as a high carb diet on that. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you're stressed out all the time. And the problem is, is if you're doing a high carb, it's better diet for your chronic, health still, it's still going to yeah, be better for health. You'll be, you'll be better, but you won't be optimal. And it's mm. like, like I'll share something with you. Like I, I work with a lot of athletes over the years and this holistic approach includes looking at them as an individual, because again, the modern construct is to commoditize individuals into groups, right? Mm. And then commoditize the product and service you're selling, because that's how you make money mm. through rep repeating. But, but people are individuals. I mean, we're all our own special snowflake, but yeah. we're all, you know, we're all the same. We're all different, right? Yeah. So the point I want to make is with the stress, you know, a lot of athletes, I work with, you know, there'll just be something, I'll sense something in the background and, and, you know, over time they'll feel comfortable and things will get shared that are in their childhood or certain traumas or something going on in their work or relationship life. And you know, unless, unless those things are developed, you can't burn fat. You can mm. be really good on sugar for a short term, but mm. you know, all these things add up and, and, and people need to realize they're individuals they need to treat, be treated like one, but as an individual, there's not this one size fits all silver bullet type approach. You know, they're going to have to do the work as much as say I, as a coach or you as a coach or some product or service, there's, there's a lot of work to be done to, to get there. And, and it's, you know, we're, we're hooked on convenience. And like you were saying before about these uh, high end profiles needing carbs, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I'm sorry, but when they go into that, I need my carbs thing, I'm thinking you're an addict and you don't even know it. Yeah, because it's <laughs> the dopamine hits, the emotional yeah. attachments, the memories. The physiology, um, yeah. the physiological impacts that your body constantly, yeah. it's like- But as like, we've said, it, it, it can work and, and people can perform well in a very high stressed state where they're pumping adrenaline all day, every day 
where they're yeah. eating carbohydrates all day, every day. It can work. But when we're looking at the overall picture, particularly when it comes to endurance sports, yep. that accumulative stress of hours that you need to put in back to back days, and then in the race itself, the accumulative stress, and then you're talking about after the race, after your career, after you want to be healthy, you want a long, healthy life. And so we're not saying it's, it's you, we're not telling people that you can't perform on carbohydrates. We're just saying there are so many other factors to performance that, um, yep. and, and lifestyle and health that can benefit from. A, well, a, yeah. Yeah. And let me, let me frame it just a little different way. Mm. It's, it's, it's what you're saying is absolutely true because it's like I say to people, you know, it's not a question of if you're going to have a problem on a chronically, a diet high in chronic concentrated carbohydrates. It's when and what form. Yeah. Right. And it just, it just, you know, your body sees it as sugar glucose. Yeah. Right. And, and so people need to understand that because they know sugar is bad because so many high carb athletes, you know, they say, Oh, complex carbohydrates or, or vegetables, or, you know, or like their gel is made from fruit. And, and it's like your body sees it as sugar. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, and you're also deficient in nutrients when you do eat the high carb right. stuff. And you mentioned earlier stress fractures or, or a bone bone issue yep. when sodium is leached out. But you'll also get that if you're eating a high carb diet because you're not eating nutrient dense proteins. Like if you're eating more carbohydrates that yep. leach nutrients from your bones, such as proteins and sodiums. Yep. Um, and then you're also not eating the nutrient dense foods that will replace. Those Absolutely. Issues. I mean, this cycle of issue. And as you said, there are so many ways that this can show up in from, from sort of stress fractures to um, muscle tightness and problems or tendon issues. Like inflammation will um, present itself and, and mental issues um, yep. and right through to just general aches and pains. And people just, you know, people who aren't even athletes who hit 30 and start to feel terrible go, oh, well, you know, they go to their doctor and the doctor just says, well, you know, you're getting old. That's just part of it. Your back's going to get sore now. And it's like, yep. I've got a client who's 50 and within um, a month or two weeks of going, he was already a bit low carb, but for him, he went carnivore. <laughs> Right. And so cutting out all lectins and gluten is a lectin. So we all know, yep. oh yeah, if I go gluten-free, I feel better. And, but if you, some people need to cut out all lectins and I'm the same. Um, and his back pain went away because the inflammation dropped. That's right. That's right. And, and that's, those are, those are, those things are huge. Mm. I mean, they're, they're just, just huge. And like my mind spinning, cause there's so many things to yeah. think about in this and it's, it's great, but, um, you know, like, like one of the, the other thing I, I think the uh, audience needs to know is like, when you we can wrap that, it up, wrap it up yeah, with yeah. Uh, what you, a last, yeah. last, some last points. In terms of the nutrition dietary side, when you get that nutritional balance, I'm not looking at the nutritional density so much as the balance. Mm. Um, uh, OFM, we look at the nutritional balance. When you get that balance just right. And, and I, I, like to have almost all my athletes on what I call whole animal eating, which means muscle meat, 
skin and connective tissue and organ meat. So mm. most, most, most white people, white people, I'm going to be racist prejudice here in the, in the reverse, but most, most modern first world people won't eat organ meat and skin and connective tissue. Most traditional cultures, that's part of their culture. They eat all this stuff. So um, you need to have that balance. And, and so for high level athletes, there is supplementation, but what I've found is when you get that nutritional balance just right in your diet, and it can be a mix of animal products and, and plant products. I'm not anti-plant here, but mm. it's just, it's simply amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how little you need, how good you perform and how good you feel on, on really very little. If you get that balance dialed in, it just, I've just, so I'm always a less is more person. It's not that on race day, you're not going to be pushing some Vespa and pushing some carbs, but it's, it's going to be a fraction of what you need. And, and even during training, you know, you're not, you know, like, like a lot of the carnivore community, there are people are bragging about how many kilos of meat they eat a day. And I'm like, that's crazy because, you know, unless you're a 18 year old kid built trying to body build, you just don't need that much protein. Yeah. Right. Or you don't need that much of, of anything, really. <laughs> you, you, you don't. But if, yeah. you, if you're eating, say, half a kilo or a little over a half a kilo plus some, some liver capsules or liver and, and mixing in the collagen, th those things plus some vegetables and your stomach and gut is in good shape, mm. it's amazing how little you need. Now, and, and just to close up, one of the things I've, one of the thought patterns I've had really lately is on the whole collagen gelatin thing. I mean, gelatin collagen protein makes up about a third, roughly a third of our proteins in our body. And I don't think people get enough of that. And the supplements out there, they're great. They're way better than nothing, but it's nothing like having the food that a lot of traditional cultures eat. I just, I've really gotten a lot bigger on the collagen, especially for stomach and gut health ligaments, tendons, myofascial sheath, all those things. And it just seems like my end of one and some of the athletes I'm working with by getting regular feedings of these collagen rich dishes, it's really had a positive impact, really a big positive impact. Mm. It makes your, your stomach and gut much more robust. We'll talk about it later in your, yeah. in your aspect to you, but yeah. those and are then, the closing. As we mentioned earlier, the the collagen is going to help the skin cells. You're going to get the vitamin D production absolutely, and, other, and all the other things through as well. Your, your nails, your hair, but, but, but even your internal organs, your, your, your stomach and gut lining, your, your soft tissue, all those things are, are made largely of collagen type proteins Bone, and bones. Yeah. Bones. And so the, you know, the ligaments, the tendons, the myofascial sheath that, that keeps the muscle formed, all those things are a collagen. So I, I think that people don't get enough collagen, but it's not as simple a thing as just supplementing with a bunch of collagen, mm. if that makes sense. Oh yeah. Real food is always, yeah. Our body yeah. is going to process it. Like it can process the sun and oxygen. These are real things. And yeah, two, two, several million, and yeah. And several million years of evolution mm. 
to can't be wrong, right? Whereas yeah. we've only had a couple hundred years of our modern man-made uh, cleverness, shall I say? <laughs> and we're not, and we haven't done very well with that cleverness so oh, far. Oh God, we've gotten ourselves so far off track, and, you, and your journey's been a perfect example. And you're getting back mm -hmm. on that that natural track, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, uh, it, it's like 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 to finish up. It's like you say, we're not saying you can't perform on a high carb diet because you've obviously shown it mm. that you can and, and you know win a championship on it. But you've also shown that it, ha it comes with some really big consequences that yeah. aren't, aren't worth it. And you're finding that, oh, wait a second, I can perform as good, if not better, on a different approach. So yeah. that's and it's, it's based on, on metabolizing fat. It's that easy. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you. It, it, it actually is that easy, yeah. but, but it's, it's really it's complex. But the actual execution of it mm. is actually pretty easy once you understand mm. the principle. Yeah. yeah, and we've talked about a lot of complex things, but at the end of the day, all these complex things are just the natural processes that go on with natural, natural food and an evolutionary aspect. Like you just look at things in the big picture. Yep. You know, what were we doing a long time ago? You know, you ate when you got hungry or when you found food, you ate. Um, and you know, and, and you didn't, and when you ate, you didn't try to train. Same thing. You don't try to tra eat when you're training. Yeah, right? you didn't need to. You, if you needed to hunt something for a couple of hours, you could comfortably do it. And then you would then feast and then you wouldn't eat till tomorrow when you hunted again. Yeah, yeah exactly. I so, mean, so, there's so much, so much. It, it's been, so, yeah. so yeah, it's like, like breaking it down and talking about it to understand it. It's very complex. It's dynamic, as we said. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really quite simple and it's, it's part of getting you know, the athlete back to that intuitive state. So even in just executing in life, you have that quiet confidence to execute in life. And then on race day, it's like, go out and you know what, kill it. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Everything, wonderful. everything comes together on race day. If you've practiced mindset, yep. nutrition, the training, everything. Um, yeah. Just keeping that fat, fat metabolism optimized. Um, this has been unreal, taking up oh, all yeah. of your time. Um, it's been awesome. So good. Thanks so much, Peter Defty from Vespa oh, for coming yeah. on to talk to us. Um, you're, you're my this pleasure. Is, let's, let's do this again soon. Oh, it's been invaluable. It's been so cool. Um, listeners are going to love it. And yeah, I definitely loved yeah. it. It's been well. And if the audience wants to hear on specific topics, like we talk about, mm -hmm. you know, let's, we could, you know, if they could just chime in and tell us what, what they want to hear about, we'll have a conversation about that. And I think, I think the conversation mode modality is really good because um, I like having this interaction with you because you as a, as a practicing triathlete, you know, this interaction makes it really dynamic. It's not me how preaching we, something. How do we put it in practical? How do, how do we pre make it work, you know, and, and, and how you've, adopted this this way and how it works in the real life of and training of and the Jacobs. questions and the questions that pop up when you're out there and going hang on where am i getting the energy from what is energy you know they're the they're the things that i think of yeah but it's kind of it's kind of interesting too right because yeah. you found that like wow i don't need all this stuff and and when i do do use it it really like gives me a boom but it's like i can go yeah. out on any day and, and do a hard training session before breakfast and, and kill it yeah awesome Super. Thanks so much. We will do it again. We'll get listeners to send in questions and um, yeah, that would be awesome to have you on again. And we'll put, we'll push it out there on our, our stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay.
Thanks very Thanks, much, Pete. Peter. Thank yep, you. you're welcome. Well, that was amazing. And I can't thank Peter Defty enough for taking the time. So much time. And I didn't even realize while we were chatting how long we'd been chatting because I just was hanging on every word that he was saying. And it was just a, a thrilling conversation for me. So I hope you guys really enjoyed it as well. There was so much information in that. Um, please send through questions so we can do it again and get deeper into the particular topics that you want to know more about. And as we talked about Phil Maffetone, as luck has it, Phil Maffetone is the next guest on the next upcoming podcast. So that is going to be an awesome tie-in from this episode into that one because we're talking about the same things. Both of these guys are both coming from the same place where health and performance are the same thing and where all stresses affect both health and performance and putting all of those together into how do we put it in practical terms, how can we optimize it for those that want to perform really well and also how these two different guys come at it from two slightly different angles. It's really nothing is is the same for any body like everybody's an individual so you know just to get two of the best guys with two different approaches and how they explain it how they put it into their lives and into the people that they've coached um it's going to be awesome and, and as somebody who's been mentored or i've been lucky enough to have long conversations with both of these guys peter and phil in the last couple of years um for my own personal health and performance, um, it's just awesome that I'm now able to ask them the questions that I want to know and so that you can also know the answers at the same time. So this is a great platform. So please contribute, ask the questions so we can connect and get together more often and do this in a more connected way. So make sure that you like and subscribe and make a comment wherever you're listening to this um, and please let us know that you've enjoyed it um, through social media as well. Like and comment and follow us over there to stay connected and the future episodes are just going to get better and better as we get your feedback and get your questions. We can make better episodes. So thanks again for listening and just want to let you know that Jamie and I have put all of these things that we've learned through Phil Maffetone particularly, into practice, into a 12-week program that is covering all aspects of stress, that is covering all aspects of health and performance. And we want to work with you. So do look at our website and our links through social media and get in touch with us. Send us a DM and we will get back to you straight away. So we'd love to hear from you on that regard as well and work with you guys. So thanks again for listening and get ready for the next episode with Phil Maffetone.